Part 1 of John Bull's Vineyard, Australian Sketches, by Hubert de Castella. Melbourne, Sands and MacDougall Limited, 1886. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Va, petit livre, et si tu fais quelque chemin, aide-nous à faire le nôtre. Preface The last chapter of this little book was already in type when my publisher asked me for a preface. This is an ordeal for which I was not prepared, more especially at this moment when we are busy with a large vintage. He who could not compose a landscape from his imagination may sometimes paint sketches from nature, which will be interesting on account of their truthful couleur locale. If the following vignettes have this modest quality, they may pass muster amongst the efforts made by our colonies to procure an adequate representation of Australia at the London Indian and Colonial Exhibition. Hubert de Castella Dedication Early in 1859, being already a naturalised Australian, but at that time a visitor in Rome, I stood often watching with keen interest a bright young Englishman descending briskly the terrace of Pintio, alongside his military-looking guardian, or walking with him, full of life and action, through the gardens of the Villa Borghese. Again, he being the distinguished occupant of the balcony of the House of Malta during the carnival of the same year, two other Australians and I were, from a balcony almost adjacent, enjoying his joy and rejoicing in his pleasure. The welfare of our distant country was connected with this spirited young Englishman. When the news of the London Indian and Colonial Exhibition, so specially organised by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, reached us here, I recollected how the frankness, the earnestness, the decision, and the whole appearance of the young prince, twenty-four years ago, had made us feel that we could count upon his help in future days. If His Royal Highness meets with these pages, may they be to him as an expression of Australian gratitude. About our title page We hope Mr Max O'Rell will not grumble about our taking a leaf from his books and following his footsteps to catch the eye of a reader. Even without a winning title, his sprightly volumes would have come to the fore. Not so with us. We have to speak of matters new and of moderate interest, of unknown wines, and this to John Bull, who hates anything new, especially in the shape of liquor. Our only chance is to appeal to his practical qualities. He takes always good care of his business. If we can only cause him to observe that he has properties which he has hitherto neglected, vineyards in Australia, most valuable vineyards which may bring him money and health, two things he is very fond of, the day is ours. Par insinuation. I am perhaps presumptuous in attempting to describe in a language which is not my own the vineyards and farms of Victoria, the excellence of their products and the happy life of their possessors. When an Englishman speaks French tolerably well, his British accent pleases his hearer rather than otherwise. Such is not the case with the foreigner speaking English. Anything not correctly English is ludicrous, 
be it manners or words. I can only hope that my principal subject, the vine, being an alien one, my phraseology may be tolerated. Another cause of embarrassment is the fact that I am an Australian vine grower. Yet, as one of the oldest and one who has gone into that industry, coi bien, I hope that my fellow workmen will bear with my egotism if, in telling of our past, I relate much of my own experience. I hope also that they will pardon my foreign bias when speaking of our vintages if I take the standpoint of the best of all, those of France. Ex abrupto The vine is, par excellence, the plant of sunny lands, not of tropical regions, but of those where life is best to live, where days are warm and nights temperate, where summer is joy and winter is work, both free from scorching heat and from freezing cold. The vine is a favourite emblem of Christianity, of the religion which teaches moderation and charity, but its natural product, the wine, must not be mistaken for the concentrated poison extracted from it and from so many plants, the alcohol, that fatal substitute for the juice of the godly grape. A great cry has been raised against the demon alcohol, the war cry of the Salvation Army and the Temperance Societies. Although we, vignerons, stand aloof from them, we can feel no antagonism towards their work, and, but for the extravagance of their ways, we should behold with an astonishment mingled with respect the progresses of their legions. Even our prosperity is interested in their advancement, for wine, which providence has given for health and happiness, gains when intemperance decreases. The human family spreads now like flood water on low ground, where climate, space and fertility offer the greatest advantages to man. Steam and rails have annihilated distances and contribute every day to equalise over the earth the value of the land, the cost of labour and the price of food. Like other goods, the wines of the various climes will be found side by side and at moderate prices, in the markets of the countries debarred from that production. England, where competence, is once, as Carlyle would have explained, is more general than in any other part of the world, must become a large consumer. The federation of the British possessions today in the hearts of so many Englishmen, and tomorrow perhaps passed into the domain of facts, gives a special interest to Australian viticulture. Is it not in view of the closer bonds that may unite the English race that the products of the whole empire are summoned today to London? Amongst these, wine stands in the first place. Since the invasion of the phylloxera and the diminished production of the old vineyards, wine is becoming a much manipulated beverage. Hence the attention that the growths of Australia will probably command. The object of the present book specially intended to describe Victorian vineyards, although it must naturally represent much of the life of the general Victorian farmer, is to supplement the evidence that will be afforded by the colonial samples, and to show that, possessing as we do the fittest soil and the best climate, growing already the choicest varieties and animated at all times by the most resolute perseverance, we must eventually succeed. Chapter 1. 
Early Australian Vineyards John MacArthur, who came to Sydney in 1791 as a captain in the New South Wales Corps, and to whom Australia is indebted for the introduction of the Merino sheep, has also the honour of having been the first to plant an Australian vineyard. Summoned to England in consequence of his quarrel with Governor Bly, he was forbidden to return to Sydney from 1811 to 1817, and he devoted that time to the education of his sons and to travelling with them on the continent, studying all that could be of advantage to the colony and could be introduced on his estate at Camden. His youngest son, William, afterwards Sir William MacArthur, born at Parramatta in 1800, was placed at school at Vevey in Switzerland. The stay of that young man amidst the vines which cover the fair slopes of the Lake of Geneva had an influence not only on the establishment of the Camden Vineyard, but also, indirectly, on Victorian viticulture. MacArthur's best comrade at Vevey was the Count Louis de Portales of Neuchâtel, and the latter, from having been the confidant of the young Australian's hopeful tales of his native land, became one of the few on the continent possessing, as far back as the first quarter of the present century, any special knowledge of the New Holland of these days. An Englishman of French extraction, Mr Charles Latrobe, married in 1835 a relative of the Portales, Mademoiselle de Montmorin, and was appointed in 1839 first superintendent of Port Philip, afterwards the first governor of the colony of Victoria. Monsieur Louis de Portales's recollections of the sanguine descriptions of his Australian schoolmate contributed in giving to his cousin, Mrs Latrobe, the courage necessary to start for that distant region. My parents were living in Neuchâtel at the time, and I well remember the astonishment and awe of us little children when told how Mrs Latrobe would be six months on the big sea, how she was to take with her a wooden house in her ship, to live in it in a country peopled with savages. In a small community such as Neuchâtel was fifty years ago, the departure for the antipodes of a lady belonging to one of the oldest and richest families of the town created a sensation. Five years after Mrs Latrobe's arrival in Melbourne, eleven men had started from the canton of Neuchâtel for Australia. They had settled near each other in the district of Geelong, and being familiar with the cultivation of the vine, all had planted vineyards around their homes. In 1848, a nephew of Mrs Latrobe and my brother, both only 21 years of age, came to Victoria to become squatters. Another nephew of Mrs Latrobe, Mr G. de Puy, now Swiss consul in Melbourne, joined them in 1851, I myself in 1854. My brother had bought the station of Yering, 30 miles distant from Melbourne. By curious coincidence, on that station, as early as 1840, namely before the Geelong settlement, William Ryrie, its original owner and one of the pioneers of Port Phillip, had planted with vine cuttings from Camden about an acre, the first Victorian vineyard. Wine growing is an enticing pursuit, it is an art, a bond of hospitality, pride to the host and good humour to his friend. Today the Yering vineyard occupies 100 acres, and on the same bank of the River Yarra, Monsieur de Puri 
has seventy acres under vines at Yeringberg, and myself, two hundred and sixty acres at St. Hubert's. Chapter 2 Old and New Le cépage fait le vin, a French axiom which means that upon the kind of grape depends the quality of the wine, even more so, given the proper climate and proper manipulation, than upon any other cause. The finest wines are made from varieties generally producing a moderate quantity of small-sized grapes, which ripen to perfection only in temperate countries. Were it not so, Greece, Sicily, Asia Minor and other lands, where vines trained on trees and requiring little labour, grow bunches the size of those of Canaan, would ere this have produced Chateau Latour and Johannesburg. Favoured by a variety of temperatures, Victoria produces the light wines of France and Germany, and also the rich wines of the warm latitudes, the latter ones being the rule. There is compensation for everything in this world. Even in Australia, delicate grapes are grown in comparatively cool districts, at much greater cost, and are subject to many more evils than their more vigorous kindred. In Europe, without speaking of the phylloxera, which has ruined one out of ten French vignerons, and has taken away half the value of the property of the others, long is the list of dangers the vine is subject to. First, the spring frost, next the rain at blossoming time, the hail all through the summer. As to diseases and parasites, le jaune, le colis, la pyrale, l'écrivain, the sweeping oidium, and of very late years, several new ones with ominous names, the peronosphora, the antrach nose. Considering the capital necessary to establish a vineyard in the old world, the time to wait there for a first crop, it requires some courage to undertake it. Compare this with the good fortune of the Australian, who chooses a sunny district. He has selected his farm at one pound per acre, dispersing only in full payment of it one shilling per acre per annum for twenty years. During the first few years, if he is without means, he has from time to time lent his labour to others, and only by degrees cleared off trees, cropped and improved his property. But if he has been sober, how soon wages of one pound and more per week, besides his food, the increase of a few cows, the butter made by his wife, the eggs saved by her care. How soon the whole economy has brought comfort to his home. After he has taken a crop of wheat or oats from his land, if he decide having a few acres under vines, a simple ploughing ten inches deep is necessary. Four hundred vines in very warm localities, one thousand in cooler ones, do not take long to plant simply by cuttings well rammed into holes made with a crowbar in the newly ploughed land. This done in straight lines, ten or six feet apart, according to the climate, to allow the plough or scarifier to keep the plantation clear of weeds, an easy task where the soil is loamy and the sun powerful. The next winter, a few days are required for pruning his vines, in spring, a few days for ploughing the ground, for taking the unnecessary shoots, for adding support of some kind to the young plants, 
and for tying the longest branches. A few days in summer for scarifying the weeds. Dame Nature does the rest. During the third year, the same work, only more of it, the vines being older, but if they have been well taken care of, there comes already the reward, two or three bunches of grapes per vine, according to the variety planted, just enough, if the farmer has planted a few acres, to make his first cask of wine. The more sober a man he is, and he must have been so, otherwise his vineyard would not have been properly kept, and would have borne him no early crop. The more there is joy in the family, for wine is food, and he gives it, diluted with water, to his wife and his young children, for whom the acidulated taste is freshness in the mouth, like chickweed to the birds. The cask of wine lasts him the whole year, and the children grow to like only the fruity liquid which they get at home. They will never care for strong drinks afterwards. Pardon this digression. I was saying that on the third year, our farmer made his first hundred gallons of wine. Supposing that he planted five acres of vines, he made on the fourth year perhaps one thousand five hundred gallons, and unlike the European grower, for I must try to come back to my starting point, he has not passed his days trembling for fear of frost, of hail, or of the invasion of innumerable cryptogams. End of part one.